Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. Sometimes I read the wrong passage, but I do speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is an adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple, uh, te the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all forever praise. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who were descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one, uh, had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or efforts, but on God's mercy. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. Therefore, God had mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore, the great, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom we also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people. Who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one, who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It will be just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Verse 30. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it? Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. See, 
I lay a stone in Zion, a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Congratulations. You've got your standing in for the day. Do any of your Fitbits measure standing as a good thing? I don't know. Only steps. Only steps. All right. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Today, uh, we are continuing our series, as you can tell, on the book of Romans. And as I say often at church, and I think I say it a lot, but I hope to continue to say it because I think it's true. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. You see, all of us have a kind of personal theology of God. And by theology, I mean just the implicit beliefs we have that shape us and shape our view of God. Are any of you familiar that you have some implicit beliefs kind of deep down in your heart that shape how you view and relate to God? This could just be called your own personal theology. And these beliefs have all kinds of things to do about what you think about when you think about God. For instance, this colors how you think God feels about you. We all have an implicit belief deep down that God feels a certain way about us. Or we have, a thought, we have some thoughts deep down about what God is doing in the world. What is he up to? You see, uh, ideas that you have about God will also shape things like uh, what you think God is, is mad at or happy with. If, or what you think is true about God or not true about God. These are all things that influence your view of God. It's what you think about when you think about God. Now, none of us have a perfect picture of who God is. None of us have, none of us have it nailed perfectly. It, everything we think about God is conditioned by experiences and teaching and probably cultural baggage and, and experiences we've had with our parents and the way we've read the Bible in the past or exposure we've had to different people. But, and this is important, Christians believe that the part of the way, actually the primary way, that we come to form our thinking about God that we come to bring our, our thoughts about God into the conformity with the reality of who God is, is by looking at Jesus. This is how we believe that we bring all of our kind of dis, discombobulated thinking about God into conformity with who God really is, is by looking at Jesus. And this is really important, and it's all over the scriptures. Specifically, Jesus says it himself in John's gospel, in chapter 14. Jesus is having this conversation with his disciples uh, after the Last Supper. So the disciples are a little bit, dis not discouraged, but they definitely know that something is about to go down with the Romans. They're a little scared. And, and despite the fact that they know there's all of this kind of political intrigue swirling around Jesus, that things might very well get bad, Jesus is acting weird. Have you ever thought about this? That, that if Jesus lived in our day and age, the, way in which he, the, the ways in which he act would be perceived by us as a little bit odd. So when his disciples believe that he should be preparing for whatever's coming his way via the Romans and the Jewish religious leaders, Jesus is doing things like washing people's feet, right? An effective use of your time 
when you're about to when you're about to be taken into custody. And he's saying strange things to the disciples about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Like Jesus is strange here. But it's clear throughout the sto- the, this story in j- chapter 14 of John's gospel that his disciples are really beginning to doubt. They're beginning to doubt who Jesus is. They're beginning to doubt what they had just been doing with this man for the past three years. And they begin to ask him some questions, specifically Thomas and Philip begin to talk back and forth with Jesus. And his, but what I want to center in here this morning is the exchange that Jesus has with Philip, this disciple. Philip, probably looking for some word of comfort, given how unnerved he was, says to Jesus, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Show us something, Jesus. Show us the Father. You see, Jesus had been talking a lot in his ministry about a God that, a God that he referred to as Abba. Father. Jesus had taught his disciples about the character of this God named Abba in parables like the prodigal son. And on the precipice of what I'm sure was going to be a very few difficult days, and the disciples probably knew this, the question that keeps popping up that, they, that at least Philip wants an answer to is, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus, just show us the Father. If you could, please, just show us this daddy God that you've been talking about. Have any of you ever been in a situation where you were quite fearful and just the presence of your father or a father figure in your life somehow calmed you down? Have you ever been there? I had a falling out with a roommate in college. He's one of my good friends now, but we broke a lease because we didn't like each other. and We moved out of this apartment. His name's Matt Thomas. He's a great man. Uh, But... Uh, he lives in Springfield. But uh, I was discombobulated. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was done with college. I worked nights cleaning toilets in a dentist office, really glamorous work, if there's ever been glamorous work. And I was just discombobulated. And I remember calling my dad and just the calm feeling that came over me when my dad said, Nick, why don't you come home for a little bit? I thought, That sounds about right, right? That sounds about right. And so Philip, in this discombobulated, kind of fearful time in his life, says to Jesus, show us the Father. And what Jesus says is fascinating. Here's what he says in verse 9. Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip? Even, Even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least, or at least, if you can't do that, believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So in short, our picture of God, what we think about when we think about God, should be centered on Jesus. And this theme gets picked up by the early disciples. Specifically, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, we hear Paul recite what actually turns out to be a kind of poem or early Christian song. Here's what he says. 
The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. That word in Greek there is icon. The firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. That's one of my favorite scriptures of all time. I suggest that if you're in the business or in the habit of memorizing scriptures, that that be one of the top, on the top of your list of scriptures to memorize. But in essence, this passage is just restating what we heard Jesus say, right? That to the disciples at the Last Supper, Jesus is what God looks like. Can you say that with me? Jesus is what God looks like. This is good. This is good. So in a sense, this is, an, this is kind of oversimplistic, I, I understand, but I'm preaching, and sometimes you have to be uh, overly simplistic sometimes. Your job, my job, right, is to bring our implicit theology, the, thing, the thoughts we have about God, into line with who Jesus is, right? That's the job of discipleship. And it sounds simple, right? But any of us who have been alive for any, any period of time and any of us who have followed Jesus for any period of time know that that's not as easy to do as it is to say, correct? Because you will run into things in this life that will call into question the goodness of God, right? You will run into things in this life that will call into question the goodness of God. You will run into situations in life that will naturally uh, create in you a kind of discordance where you begin to question the implicit theological assumptions about God that you have. And that's not always a bad thing. And in fact, it can be a very good thing because I believe that the Holy Spirit wants you to go through times where you question and reform your thoughts about God, right? If he didn't, then you would just spring into this world as a perfect Christian, right? With perfect theology, with perfect character, right? But God has something else in store for you, each and every one of us. You see, we all go through seasons where some of the bad habits of thought about who God is need to be replaced with better ones. And very often, these are times of dislocation or discomfort. When you leave one town and enter another, it can be hard. You're, we, we've learned from neuroscientists that as you actually begin to, to create new neural pathways when, in your brain, when you begin to reform your picture of God, and you step out of old structures and systems and into new ideas, but I believe that the Holy Spirit is always working in the midst of our, what will sometimes even look like doubt, to bring about this good end of making us a people who have an implicit view of God, thoughts about God, theology, internal implicit theology about God that is 
more in line with the person of Jesus. Now, one of the tools that I have found that God will occasionally use to bring about these seasons where our thinking about God is reformed is the Bible. The Bible is, I believe, the primary tool that God uses along with <clears throat> excuse me, along with just the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and one another, each other, our, our relationships within the church, to bring about this change of thinking. And part of the way that the Bible does this is by challenging and provoking us. Challenging and provoking us. The Bible ought not to be a book that is always like a warm electric blanket when it gets cold outside, right? It should, actually I believe very often, challenge and provoke us. It should put its finger on things in our lives, and it should, at times, create a kind of wrestling. Have you ever thought about the fact that you are called, as a follower of Jesus, to wrestle with the Bible, with the Word of God? To actually wrestle with, struggle, um, deal with it, contend with it in a sense. And this is a good thing. Part of the reason I'm convinced that this is how we're supposed to relate to the Word of God is because of some of the stories in the Scriptures. Many of you are familiar with the story of Jacob's wrestling with God, right? In Genesis 32. Jacob literally wrestles with God. And then his name is changed to Israel, which means struggles with God. And so, and so God himself changed Jacob's name and gave a name to a people that literally means struggles with God, wrestles with God, contends or deals with a reality. This is, this is good news. This is good news because it means that our faith is not this like linear thing. This just, it's not like, it's not this thing is just handed to you and you, and you just ch check all the boxes and do what it says. It's not math homework, right? We wrestle with the scriptures. We contend with God and ourselves. And through this process of wrestling that is not always comfortable, we come to a place to conform our image of God in a healthy way. This is why faith is not always easy. This is why some of the people who have gone before us and walked this uh, walk of faith tell us that there are times in our faith journey where, we, where our preconceived notions are called into question and we have to step from one phase of our journey in faith into another phase of our journey in our faith. Gregory of Nyssa was a great church father. And he says that, uh, he says that the, the journey of faith is like a, a, a journey from Proverbs through Lamentation or through, through Ecclesiastes and into Song of Songs. And what he means by that is that when we first come to faith, very often we have a kind of simple faith, right? We, we have, we have a, a proverbial faith. But very often we move from that kind of proverbial phase of faith, which is not bad, it's, a, it's the place you have to start, into, a, into an Ecclesiastes phase of faith, which is this phase where, in which we question and contend and wrestle. We call in, we, uh, some of the preconceived notions that we have get exploded a little bit. 
And from that place, we step into this other place of intimacy. It's, it's when we've been kind of waylaid a little bit by the Spirit of God, and we've been laid low, and we know that in that place, all of the all of the cliches that maybe we depended on before can't hold us up, and all we have is Jesus, that we step into a phase of intimacy with God that's strong and good. You know, in the same way that a muscle needs to be worked out, it needs to, the fibers of a muscle actually need to be broken down in order to grow, in the life of a Christian, there is this wrestling. There is this calling into question. And it can be sometimes very uncomfortable, but it leads to a picture of God that is more healthy and more true as we see Jesus more clearly. And man, I'm not even to the text yet. How long are we going to be here this morning, Nick? It brings us to Romans chapter 9 this morning. Romans chapter 9 is one of those chapters of Scripture that when we read it can create some dissonance in our heart. It's actually one of those texts of Scripture that needs to be wrestled over and with. It doesn't need to be resolved right away. Not everything in this life can be resolved right away. Not every question we have about the scriptures will be resolved right away. But it is a passage of scripture that creates some tension. And we need to go about the business of wrestling over it. And to be honest with you, Christians, for as long as the Bible have been, has been in existence, have been wrestling with really uh, chapter 9 through chapter 11 of Romans. And trying to figure out what exactly it is that Paul is saying here. And so I'm going to read beginning in verse 18 of Romans chapter 9, and hopefully just to kind of summarize where we find the tension in this passage. And then as we go, I'm not going to try to resolve all the tension, but I am going to attempt to the best of my ability to show you what I think Paul is getting at in this passage so that hopefully, hopefully, as we look at it, we can see a picture uh, we can have an implicit belief in the person of Jesus. We can, we can take on some thoughts about God that are actually healthy and that actually look more like Jesus. And we, maybe we can even wean ourselves off some pictures or some ideas about God that we have that might not be as healthy. Does this make sense? Yes, thank you, Jocelyn. <laughs> Jocelyn doesn't count, guys, just okay. If you're on staff and you're the only person that says yes, you'd... Uh, it, I'll take it, but we, got, we need some other people. Otherwise, you think I'll, I pay her to do things like that, and that's not good, right? All right. Uh, verse 18 of chapter 9 says this, Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, Then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to, act, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to what uh, say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. Now, this picture that we have in this passage of Scripture, as I said, has called a lot of people to wrestle in question because it seems to surface an idea 
that can be slightly disturbing to people the first time you read it. The picture on the surface that we are getting here is of a God who can seem a little disturbing, right? This, because Paul employs, and he employs um, a picture here to describe what God is like. And the, and the picture that he employs is of a potter, someone who makes clay pots. And that potter who makes these pots is making some to be used for good or what he calls noble purposes and others to be used for common use. And it seems that some of the pots uh, that he makes, when he makes them, he does so knowing that they are going to be destroyed and that they are destined or predetermined to be objects of his wrath. And it seems clear from this passage of scripture that Paul is drawing the analogy, right? That pots are people. That pots are people. And so Paul is saying, in effect, some people God created specifically for the, for the purpose of salvation, which is good. And some people he created to be objects of his wrath and to be destroyed. This is often called the doctrine of election. Sometimes it's referred to as theological determinism. It's that your life and my life have been predetermined, that God decided before the foundations of the earth who would be saved and who would not, right? This is the idea that many people get from this passage. It is a theological belief in the sovereignty of God. And by the sovereignty of God, this theological determinism says that God is total sov totally sovereign, that he knows everything and everyone, and that he predetermined what everything, everyone would be and what everything would do and how everything would occur. Because he predetermined it. He has the power to do so. And so God intended ahead of time which people would be saved and which people would be destroyed and damned. Now, that is a bit of an oversimplification, right? I can't sum up all of these ideas in this small of a time. But when we read this passage, that's the implication you get, isn't it? Do you agree or disagree? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's the implication we get. This, but this morning, I just want to give you a few brief, I'll make it brief, a few brief arguments or ideas that push back a little bit on that reading of the text. You see, what I want us to do this morning is not resolve this entirely, but to maybe wrestle with it in such a way as to have some new vistas or some new perspectives open to us that would allow us to interpret this passage in a way that would make us look at Jesus, all right? That's the goal, to look at Jesus. And so, uh, here we go, all right? So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to keep them open to Romans chapter 9, because there is some stuff that we're going to be referencing back to that might be helpful for you. So as I said, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And this picture, the picture of this potter who creates some pots to be destroyed and some to be saved, is it, uh, can negatively affect some of our pictures of God. And I hope to help us take some steps towards um, a healthier view of who God is. All right? So first key to interpreting this passage of scripture in Romans chapter 9, and really it's 9 through 11, is this. Paul is not addressing individuals here. All right? This is hard to, this is hard to pick up on because we don't have a plural you in northern, in northern American English. 
But in Greek, we would read many plural yous here, and so it would be easier for us to understand. And this might sound strange that Paul is not addressing individual salvation here, because we Americans love to talk and think about ourselves, don't we? It's like our favorite thing. We want to make everything in the Bible about us. We just want a warm cup of coffee in the Bible, and we want it all to just come straight to me, all be about me, all affirm me. But Paul is not talking about individuals here. Paul is talking about, he, uh, he is not talking about how individuals are saved, even. Instead, Paul is addressing a question that the, that the, that the people to whom he is writing have, the church to which he is writing have, and that question, and we've talked about it a little bit because it's been a theme through Romans, is about if the promise that God made to Israel has been rescinded. His pro- th- this promise that he made to the people of Israel as the covenant people. Who, uh, now, when, and here's what you need to know, and it's easy when you read this passage. Paul has the whole story of Israel in mind in chapter 9, doesn't he? He references all, from from all the patriarchs in Genesis all the way back to the, comp- to the current time to which he's writing. He's referencing the whole story of the Bible here. He has the whole story of the Bible in view. The story of how God chose Israel to be a kind of light to the world. But now it seems that God has hardened the hearts of Israel. That's what that whole passage about hardened hearts is about. And, and then has passed the baton that he first gave to Israel to the Gentiles. This is how it appears in chapter 9 of this passage. And so what Paul is saying in effect here is that God in his mercy can choose anybody to be his chosen people that he likes. Thank you very much, people of Israel, right? This is what he's saying. That's what he was talking about when he says, uh, Jacob have I loved, but but Esau have I hated. That's hyperbolic language. God didn't literally hate Esau, right? It's language that's meant to speak um, symbolically or hyperbolically about the fact that Jacob became the one through whom, he's the one whose name was changed to Israel, he's the one through whom the people of Israel came to be formed, right? Jacob represents the, the Jacob's the great patriarch. He's the one who represents Israel. And so, is both Jacob and Esau represent whole groups of people. Does this make sense? Whole groups of people. We know this, again, because even though Jacob was a pretty shady figure, right? At points in the story, and he's not someone that you would have expected God to use, he eventually got his name changed to Israel, as we, made, as we mentioned earlier, and was, the, was chosen to be the one through whom this lineage or this people would continue. And in the same way in this passage, Paul is saying that God has, has now elected or opened up the people of God to the Gentiles. So when you read the word elect, you have to read group of people, okay? It's important. And though it seems like it, and, and this is important and a, a, maybe a little bit of a sidebar, but some people care about it, so I'm going to mention it. Though it seems like Israel's hearts have been hardened, Paul, Paul alludes to this in chapter 9 and later, eventually the kingdom of God is going to kind of work its way back around to Israel through the Gentiles. 
Paul actually says that the reason this has happened is because we want the gen- we want uh, the, so that the Jews would be jealous, right? That they would be jealous, and that this promise would kind of work its way back around, and that Israel, in a in this like miraculous little turn of of God's faithfulness, would actually be blessed via the Gentiles, right? This is what Paul is saying here. Actually, it's kind of beautiful that though Israel in many regards, did not live up to the standard and the promise that God had made with them, he w- and, and, and in effect, God did open up the doors to the people of God, to all people, because of the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul is saying, but still, God is going to work his way back through the back door, back around to the people of Israel, and bless them through the Gentiles. It's kind of a beautiful little story. And though it looks like Israel has turned its back on what is God. God is doing in the world, Israel will itself actually be blessed. Kind of cool, right? So here's what I want you to take away. If you take away one thing from this passage this morning, when you read elect or election in the Bible, read Israel. I had a really good Bible scholar. Her name was Janine Brown, uh, and she used to always say that to us. Whenever you read election, read Israel. And that will be helpful for you to kind of understand what exactly is going on here. It's a, Paul actually got a little big bit of a dig in at Gentiles, at people like you and me, because he said, God made some of us for common use. That would be Gentiles, right? And he chose to take the common thing and make it the main thing for a bit, right? And so he's saying, Look at you, commoner. God can even use you, as simple as you are, right? This is kind of the point that Paul is making in this passage. So that's the first thing this morning. The second thing from uh, chapter 9 of, verse, of Romans is this. Paul is talking, uh, is talking about election to mission, not election to salvation. Election to mission or service, not election to salvation. Now, The question we have to ask is, who are going to be the primary carriers of the message of Jesus? Who are going to be the primary carriers of the message of Jesus? And Paul is saying that up until this point in history, it was the Jews who were the primary characters, the special people, the ones set apart to carry the message of God, to be the light of the world. But now it is this group of Gentiles, it seems, that have been given the baton to be the messengers of God's salvation. This is how Leslie Newbegin, the uh, missiologist, puts it. He says, to be chosen, to be elect, therefore, does not mean that the elect are saved and the rest are lost. To be elect in Christ Jesus, and there is no other election, means to be incorporated into his mission to the world, to be the bearer of God's saving purpose to his whole world, to be the sign and the agent and the first fruits of the blessed kingdom, which is for all. And so to be elected in Paul's language here means to have a mission. It doesn't mean that you are the chosen one, right? And that you have a special status and that other people don't have that status, right? This This is not what it means. What it means is that if you have been incorporated into this family of the elect, the people of God, then the reason you are incorporated into that family is to be a messenger of the goodness and grace and love of God. It has nothing to do with sitting back in your easy chair, right? 
and just like soaking up the benefits of being special in the eyes of God. This is not what it means. It means to be a bearer, to be a sign, an agent, a first fruits of the blessed kingdom, which is for all. And so, and so, if you count yourself among the community of the redeemed, if you count yourself a Jesus person, your responsibility in the eyes of Romans chapter 9 is, to be, is that you are elect in some true sense. You are a member of this community, but you are a member towards mission and not for yourself. Your purpose is to be for other people first and foremost, not to, not to be the bearer of some, uh, some lottery ticket. You're, you're not, it's not Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, you know? You didn't get a golden ticket, though that would be great. I would be Augustus Gloob. I would lose my life in the chocolate tube. Anyways, no, I wouldn't. I don't even like chocolate. It was just a funny image to see myself as Augustus Gloob. Anyways, so this is what Paul is talking about here. The responsibility of being the people of God is not a responsibility, or is, not, is not just like a, an assignment you get, but rather it's a responsibility to mission, to be agents of of the message of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, the renewal and reconciliation of all things under the head of King Jesus. This is what it means to be a member of this elect community we call the church. All right? So that's number two. The third thing this morning is that is about Jesus' love and God's grace. Now we come full circle, right, to where we started it. All our theological questions must begin and they must end with Jesus. That's where they begin and end. We have to let the picture we see of Jesus in the scriptures color the way we understand everything we read, all right? If you have one interpretive key that you use to read the scriptures, it should not be your tradition, it should not be what your parents taught you, it should be Jesus. It should be the, it, the lens through which we read the scriptures has to be Jesus. And we have to let that picture that we see of Jesus in the scriptures suffuse everything, all of the opinions we have of, around what a particular passage of scripture means. And passages like Romans 9 through 11 need to be held in tension with the picture of God we see in the person of Jesus and the truths about Jesus we see in other passages of scripture. For instance, passages like 2 Corinthians 5, 15, where we read this, and he died for all. He died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. The scriptures affirm this over and over and over again. That the grace of God in some mysterious way is universally available to everyone. Olivia, if you could come up and do that. The... The love of God is universally, the love of God and the grace of God are universally available to each and every one of us. And passages like this have to be held in tension with passages like Romans chapter 9 or in Romans chapter 8 where we read that he predestined those he foreknew, right? Those passages need to be held in tension with what we hear about the universality of Jesus, the extension of his grace and his love. You see, there is no one, no one 
for whom the grace and love of God are not streaming all the time. You and I, if you, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, we're not the special ones that got the grace and love of God, and then the other people didn't, right? Because they weren't, they weren't good enough. This isn't, this isn't what the scriptures say. The scriptures say that the love of God is open and available to everyone. In theological terms, it's called prevenient grace. It's a Methodist term. It's that when God looks at you, and he looks at me, and he looks at every human being that's ever existed on the face of the earth, all he wants to do is give us his life so that we might be close to him, so that the sin in our life might be kind of washed away in the life and death of Jesus, that we might be near him and that we might be his people. This is what the picture of Jesus tells us in the scriptures. And we always need to keep that in mind. Again, Leslie Newbegin says it this way. He said, God does not choose to save some and to destroy others. His grace is free and it is sovereign. And there is no place for an exclusive claim on his grace claim by which others can be excluded. And so I have good news for you this morning. No one is excluded from the grace of God. Not one single human heart. Not you, not me, not anyone. And so you can go out into our world and profess full-throatedly with everything you are and every person you meet is beloved by God and is a candidate for the grace and the saving work of Jesus. You'll never meet a soul in this world who doesn't need it, who doesn't deserve it, but who is loved nonetheless. And that should give us confidence, confidence. As we follow Jesus, as we live our lives as his elect, as the people called and sent forth out into the world to preach this good news, never encounter a soul that God does not love. And that has not been, and that soul has not been created for the express purpose of enjoying God forever. That was the purpose you were created for and the purpose I was created for. It's the purpose that your greatest enemy was created for. It's the purpose that your kids were created for. That's the purpose. And that's the goal. Would you stand with me this morning? And so as we conclude, I, I just kind of two takeaways for us. One, if you have an image of God that doesn't align with what we were just talking about, though, if you have some implicit ideas about God, that maybe he doesn't like some people and he likes other people more, or that in some sense you're, uh, you, are, you are just accursed or something, scriptures and with the picture of Jesus that we see. So there might be some reformation of our God image that needs to take place this morning. So that's the first one. And the second thing as we go today is that you are a carrier of this message. You are called everywhere you go to affirm the beauty and the unsurpassable worth of every human you meet. 
communicate to them the love and the grace of God. Sometimes we don't want to do that, do we? Sometimes we want to tell people that they don't fit our definition of the type of person that deserves love. That's not true. And that as a, as a member of this community of faith called the church, our mission is only ever to affirm people's value and worth and to tell them just how much God wants to get to know them, how much Jesus wants to get to know them. That's our responsibility. So would you pray with me this morning as we reflect on those two things? And if you're in this place this morning and you say, oh, gosh, like I do have a view of God that he's a little vindictive and he's up there making pots and he's kicking some of them into the fire and he's putting some of them on the shelf and putting flowers in them. It's not who God is. That's not who God is. And you need to reform that. And maybe you're in this place this morning and you need to go, oh, I need to, I need to love some people into the kingdom of God this week. Right? So let's bow our heads and close our eyes and open ourselves to the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Father God, we love you. And we pray that this morning, God, your the truth of who you are would just capture us. That the truth of your love and your goodness and your grace would get a hold of our hearts this morning and that we would see fully who you really are. That we would stare into the face of Jesus and we would see in Jesus' face the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one through whom and by whom all things were made in heaven and on earth. That we would see the picture of Father in heaven in the face of Jesus, and that, that would transform the way we go about our lives this week. And as we connect to that picture of our loving, uh, loving Father in the face of Jesus, would we then be empowered by the Holy Spirit to love others the way you love them, to be ambassadors of that grace out into the world, to not see people as simple inconvenience or people to be manipulated, or people that don't see it the way I see it, but rather as people to love, people that Jesus loved and died for. And would we be the ones who carry that love to them? And would they find in us a helpful road sign pointing their way to Jesus? Jesus, we love you this morning pray that as we go, you would empower us with your spirit to carry this message and carry this love. And we pray it all in that name. Amen. And amen. Amen. Well, it's November. It's warm out. Go do something fun outside. I chopped so much wood that I got blisters on my hands yesterday. It was exactly what I needed to do. Uh, go today.